0: Well, good evening, y'all. It's nice to be here again. I was here, uh, oh, I don't know how many weeks ago it was. Not that long ago, but we were oriented differently. <clears throat> I was standing right where you're sitting, <clears throat> sort of, looking at this way. But I can see y'all. I hope y'all can see uh, the screen and all. Uh, in a few more weeks, just a few short weeks, I'm going to be over here for a Friday and Saturday. Uh, That has been approaching slowly, but when it gets closer and closer, it approaches more and more quickly. Uh, On Wednesday evenings at our church in Clearwater, uh, Lakeside Community Chapel, uh, I am teaching a Wednesday night course, very similar to what I'll be teaching when I come over here for Friday and Saturday, but there I got 11 weeks to do it. That 11 weeks is difficult to boil down because I'm taking what used to be a whole semester's worth of a college course where you have 40 or 45 times to teach. And that's all boiling down to 11 times, two times, two times, two, two sessions, you know, a total of 10 hours though, right? <laughs> not 10 hours probably. 10 hours? Probably not 10 hours. Two and five, two and six? Eight. Eight. Oh, nice. yeah. Eight that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds better than I thought actually. That is incredible. All right, I am so happy to be with you here tonight. I'm going to show some uh, pictures with what I'm going to be talking about tonight. What I'm going to be talking about tonight is something that's uh, very dear to my heart. You guys, do you know it's fall? It is fall. We drove over here tonight and I'm looking at the thermometer on the dashboard of the car. Yeah, that's right, about 88 degrees. But it's fall. Uh, Some of you, probably a lot of you, are from up north originally. How many of you are from up north originally? Yeah, a lot of you are. Well, we're from up north originally too. But for a lot of us who've moved down here, it's been a while since we have actually in person seen... Beautiful leaves in the fall. It's fall, and I'll tell you what else is coming at the end of this week. Saturday is October 31st. October 31st. What do people associate with October 31st? Isn't this true? Isn't this true? May I just ask you this question? Will any of you dress up October 31st? I will. Matter of fact, I'm going to do it Friday and Saturday and Sunday. I'm so excited about it. Some of you know what I'll dress up as. It's not going to be ghoulish. It's not going to be something from the world of fantasy. It's not going to be a superhero. I'm going to dress up as one of the reformers. I am. I've been doing that for years. I live for this day. (laughs) I love it so much. Uh, by the way, uh, are any of you going to do a pumpkin? I, I am. Matter of fact, I did it already and I wanted to bring it tonight to show you. I think you'll get a kick out of this. You might say, what? Into our pastor, you're wondering why did I invite him to come tonight, right? He's canceling my engagement already. <clears throat> There's my pumpkin. <laughs> Some of you may recognize the face on there. Who is it? That is Martin Luther. Martin Luther. That's one of my prized possessions, one year old now. Obviously, and I heard some of you say this already Halloween or Reformation Day, what is October 31st? Well, I think any of you who know me, and I hope you'll have no doubts whatever, even if you don't know me before this, you know where my loyalties are. You know where my great passion lies, and that is October 31st, is what we call Reformation Day. One of the ways that very succinctly Reformation Day has been described is that it is the day when God used a monk with a mallet to change the course of church history. The monk with the mallet was Martin Luther. Now I'm not here tonight to rehearse the events of October 31st. Uh, I trust that you are somewhat familiar with that. If not, you should go online and just type in Reformation Day or type in 95 theses or type in Martin Luther and you will read the thrilling story of what took place on that day. What I'm going to talk to you tonight About though, is something that is very much closely connected with the events of the Reformation, of Reformation Day. I want to talk to you tonight about what are called the Five Solas. You ever heard of that? The Five Solas. Sola is a Latin word meaning alone or only. We think of a a soul survivor is the only survivor of a disaster. I want to talk to you tonight about the five solas, five truths that transformed the world. Five biblical truths that were emphasized by the reformers as they emphasized the gospel to dispel the darkness. In which the world was held by Romanism at that time. There's an R rating on this, R for Reformed. (laughs) R for Reformed. These things are unashamedly Reformed, Christocentric, sovereignty is emphasized, the sovereignty of God and the glory of God. Stephen read for us tonight a passage of scripture at the beginning of our service. And as we begin to look at Scripture, and I think you should have your Bible close by because we're going to be turning to a number of references here tonight. But as we have our Bible open to Acts chapter 4, as we begin tonight, uh, I want to, I know we have prayed already, and Stephen has prayed for me, but I would like to pray once again as we begin our time together in God's Word. Lord, we are so thankful tonight that we have such a rich heritage of those who have gone before us and have cherished the Word of God, have been loyal to the Word of God, have embraced the truths of the Word of God, and have lived out the message of the Word of God. And Lord, I pray tonight that You would bless us as we look into Your Word. I pray, Father, that You would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, wonderful truths that we embrace, wonderful truths that truly transform men's lives. Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified, not only as we're here together tonight, but even as we leave here and as we take these truths with us, as we go into the world and as we seek to live for you before many who are lost and without hope, without Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, here's the scene. The scene that we read about in Acts chapter 4 is Jerusalem. The scene was a specific location in Jerusalem. It was the Sanhedrin council chamber. Two men are standing before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a judicial body. It was a very powerful judicial body in the land of Israel. Matter of fact, the Sanhedrin had the authority to pass the sentence of death on someone. Not too much earlier than this, they had done just that with regard to our Lord Jesus. They condemned him to death. Why? were Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin at this particular point in Acts chapter 4. Well, may I say to you that we noticed in the reading of the scripture that a couple very significant things had happened. A lame man had been healed. A crowd had been gathered as a result. The gospel had been preached to that crowd. And then, many people were saved. Many. Stephen even read a number, and and I love the way Stephen read it. He sort of paused and read it a little bit more slowly. When Dr. Luke, who authored this account for us, Dr. Luke gave the number of the believers grew to 5,000. There were a lot of people who were saved as a result of the message that Peter preached after the healing of that lame man. But... The religious leaders were very displeased. Displeased that Jesus was being preached. Displeased that people were following Jesus. And so they asked the question of Peter and John. By what power or by what name did you do this? That's their question. Well, how did Peter and John answer that? If you look down in the neighborhood of verses 10 and 11 and 12, we have the essence of their answer to these men. Peter and John said, It is by the name of the risen Christ that this man is standing before you well, or healed, or whole. It is because Jesus has been risen and he is alive, that this man is standing before you. The next thing that they did in verse 11 was essentially to quote from Psalm 118 and verse 22. That part of that psalm is clearly messianic. Do you know what that means? That psalm was written about the Messiah to come when they quoted that psalm and talked about the stone that was rejected by the builders, the religious leaders being the ones who were reflected as the builders here, and the stone, of course, is Jesus, Scripture was fulfilled when they rejected Him and condemned Him and crucified Him. And then, and I want to read the verse once again, verse 12, one of the greatest verses in the New Testament. They said, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. May I just say to you that I'll bet the thought that went through the minds of the members of the Sanhedrin was this. How narrow-minded can you be? How narrow-minded can you be to say something like that? May I say to you, these men were being narrow-minded just like their master was. It was Jesus Himself who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what was the rest of it? No man. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Christian message, the message of Scripture is an exclusive message. We don't teach many ways to God, which is the message that is so popular in the world today. We teach that Jesus is the only way. Well, may I say, just as we conclude our look at this passage, there are, according to verse 13 two things that the Sanhedrin saw in these men. Let me read verse 13, and then I'll put two things on there. You'll be able to identify these things in the verse. Verse 13. Now, when they, that is the members of the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus." Two things. The Sanhedrin observed that these men spoke with boldness. They were not afraid to speak the truth, even though they knew that speaking the truth could cost their lives very quickly. And the Sanhedrin noticed as well that these men had been with Jesus. What a great compliment that is for someone to notice that they had been with Jesus, or for somebody to notice that we have been with Jesus, that we have been in communion with Him, that we've been in fellowship with Him. Well, as we progress tonight, as we looked at Peter and John before the Sanhedrin and their boldness and that they had been with Jesus, may I say to you that in a similar fashion the Reformers stood boldly for the truths of the Gospel? It did cost some of them very dearly, very dearly. The five truths, the five solas, if you will, that we're going to look at tonight begin with this one, sola scriptura. Now again, it's Latin and I'm not trying to teach everybody Latin tonight, but I think it's pretty simple to see what this means. Sola scriptura, only scripture, only scripture. The Catholic argument, that is the argument of the Roman Catholics at that time and continues to be so, was that God had not only given the Scriptures to the Church for authoritative instruction, but He had also given the authoritative traditions as well as papal succession. So if you ask a Roman Catholic who knows anything about the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, they will tell you that Scriptures are not the final authority. It's what the Church says about the Scriptures. It's what tradition has taught about the Scriptures. Well, what is meant by sola scriptura? Now I put two statements on the board, and whether you can read them where you're sitting, you can see that I've highlighted certain words in red, and those are the words that emphasize only alone. The inspired and errant Scriptures alone are the sole source of written divine revelation. Which alone can bind the conscience. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. Now in that second statement there, it alone teaches all that is necessary for salvation from sin and the standard by which Christian behavior must be, mes- must be measured. You know what oftentimes that is described as? The Scriptures are our only infallible rule of faith and practice. Faith, what we believe, practice, what we do. What do we base what we believe on? The Scriptures. What do we base how we live? The Scriptures. Before the Reformation... There was unchecked papal authority. That picture that I put on the screen is a picture of one of the popes, actually the pope who was ruling at the time that Martin Luther was at work and he nailed the theses. His name was Pope Leo X. Lived from 1513, er, ruled, was pope from 1513 to 1521. This pope expended papal revenues on art, letters, and music. It is said that under him, the Italian Renaissance reached its greatest splendor. Listen to what somebody else said about him. He would have been a great pope if only he was religious. What an indictment. What an indictment. Wicked men who ruled, certainly with total disregard to the scriptures, holding people captive in darkness. The other thing is, before the Reformation, the Bible was unavailable to the masses. The, the popes, the priests, did not want the people reading scriptures for themselves. No, not at all. You know what happened if the people read the scriptures for themselves? God would enlighten their minds and enlighten their hearts because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But the scriptures were unavailable to the masses. Please turn in your Bible to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a great psalm on revelation, God's revelation of Himself. It begins by talking about general revelation or natural revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above or the firmament proclaims His handiwork. But about halfway through the psalm, It talks about special revelation, namely, the Word of God. I want to read verses 7 through 11. And I want you to notice that as we read through these verses, there are a number of different descriptions, descriptive phrases, which are used all for the Word of God. It's very similar to reading Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, there are about eight different terms that are used for Scripture. Notice as these come up in the reading of Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Notice, if you will, as I just review through that passage quickly here, the things that we were told. The Word of God revives the soul. The Word of God makes wise the simple. The Word of God rejoices the heart. The Word of God enlightens the eyes. The Word of God endures forever. The Word of God is altogether true. The Word of God is more valuable than gold. And the Word of God is sweeter than honey. We could spend much more time looking at these verses and examining these verses. Oh, how wonderful is the Word of God. There's nothing like the Word of God in what it does and its great value to us. I trust that you people know that personally. Especially personally by the time that we spend in the Word of God every day. But let me turn to another passage with you, and let's go back in our New Testaments to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Once again, I want to read a section that will describe the Word of the Lord. You know, I was a little hesitant in putting this PowerPoint together and putting the picture of a Greek manuscript On the screen, but I think it's pretty safe to say that even you Greek readers probably cannot see it clearly enough from where you are to totally wander down a different road (laughs) and try to identify Greek words. Uh, But let's look at verses 22 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 22. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. that was preached to you. Peter tells his readers, Christians who are scattered throughout many of the provinces in the central part of what we call Turkey today, that they have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Just a little earlier, I quoted to you from Romans 10:17. so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And then Peter, in quoting from the Old Testament, in quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, Peter makes that beautiful analogy of even the most beautiful flowers will fade. The most beautiful bouquet that you ladies have ever received faded, it withered. The petals dropped off, the leaves got brittle it faded but the word of god the word of the lord will never ever fail it remains forever sola scriptura this is where the the five solas begin this book and this book alone is our final authority for all matters of what we believe and all things that we do in living for God. But there are five solas. The second, Latin words, solus Christus. Solus Christus. Only Christ. Only Christ. May I give to you uh, a couple statements here, but first of all, say that in the setting of the Reformers and when the Reformation began. And, and Luther is oftentimes connected with the beginning of the Reformation on October 31st, 1517, when he nailed those 95 theses. But there were very significant things going on before that, and there would be very significant things going on after that by other men. But in the world at that time, in the Roman Church, Christ was part of salvation, even the major part, But salvation was also won by human merit, especially the merit of the saints. The saints were so holy that they had accumulated what they called a treasury of merit. That is, they had holiness to spare, if you will. Imagine that. Imagine the audacity to think something like that. But they had accumulated a treasury of merit, which could be applied to lesser saints. So Christ was important, but Christ was not all important. To them. Two statements. First statement, our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of Christ alone. His sinless life and substitutionary death alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. The mediatorial work of Christ alone. I want you to turn uh, in your Bible to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul writes to Timothy, For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The next verse goes on to say, who gave himself as a ransom for all. A mediator. I think we understand what a mediator is, don't we? Here's a a very simple picture that I found that I think describes a mediator. The two guys on the right and the left look like they have problems with one another. I mean, serious problems, and would like to get at one another. But there's a guy standing in the middle. You see what it says on his shirt, by the way? (laughs) Pox, which means what? Peace. He's bringing peace between two warring parties. He is the mediator. He stands between Christ is our mediator. There's only one mediator between God and men. And we have to understand that when we're speaking of Christ as mediator, he is the mediator between sinful men and, excuse me, between sinful men and the holy God. Sinful men. Men who have offended God. Men who are guilty before God. Men who are without excuse before God. Now, I'm not just talking about the male of the species here. I'm talking about mankind. And the holy God? The holy God who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, and he cannot look on iniquity, and must judge all sin. Christ the mediator. That statement that appeared on the screen before, it said, by his sinless life, and by his substitutionary death. He became the only, only, alone answer to the question of how sinful men can be reconciled to a holy God. Christ is the answer. Only Christ. Let's move to the third of these solas. And it is the term sola gratia. Only grace. Only grace. Grace. I read to you a statement once again that gives you the setting in which the reformers lived. Grace was infused in the sinner who cooperated with it to produce good works. Those good works improved with time until they were such that God was pleased enough to grant salvation. Thus, it was a process, not a declaration. And thus, you know, it was by their own works. Don't we love the hymn Amazing Grace? I think I have read that the hymn Amazing Grace might be the most popular of all the hymns that we ever sing. Have you ever been to a, a Scottish celebration, the, the Highland Games or any such thing? You know the people love to hear the pipe bands play Amazing Grace, and they all sit there and sing along with that. I mean... To hear Amazing Grace on bagpipes stirs my soul, too. For many of you, it might just seem like somebody's trying to choke a chicken or whatever. (laughs) But I love to hear it on the bagpipes. matter of fact, yesterday at a funeral service for a dear, precious man from our church who just passed away and left such a great testimony, there was a piper there who played Amazing Grace and played it well, by the way. Um, I love it. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sinners have no claim upon God, none at all. They deserve nothing but eternal wrath. It is by God's grace alone, extended freely to those who did not earn it, that sinners are released from the bondage of sin and raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. By grace alone. Stephen can tell you, I think, I don't know whether I had done that when Steven was still one of my students at school, but I used to have hanging on my office door uh, painted on a little piece of wood that I found on campus. I think it had been a roof tile on uh, one of the small buildings on campus and it had blown off and it was so weathered it was great and I picked it up and thought someday I want to use this for something. And I painted in white letters a word that if you looked at it, it looked like the word copic, you know, or whatever. It looked like an X and an A and a P and an I and a C, but they were Greek letters and it was the Greek word charis, meaning grace. Every time I went in my office, I saw that little piece of wood that had on it the word grace. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Amazing grace. Amazing grace. I think it was James Montgomery Boyce in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, emphasized four things. The sinfulness of man. Ever since I first read or heard, I don't remember which it was, but since I first read or heard the description of sin as cosmic treason, it stuck with me as a, as a tremendous illustration of the seriousness of sin. Cosmic treason. Meaning what? Sin. Every time we sin, no matter how great or no matter how small, sin is cosmic treason against the God who created us and all things, the God who made us, the God who sustains us. It's rebellion against Him. The second thing is God's judgment on sin. What will be God's judgment on sin? God's judgment on sin ultimately will be His wrath poured out for all eternity on sin. Imagine that. Imagine that. No wonder the author of Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living living God. Third thing that is an important part of the equation to understand how amazing grace is, is man's spiritual inability. Uh, Just how much has man, and again, I mean mankind, not the male of the species, how much has man been affected by sin? Has it affected him a little bit? Sort of given him a spiritual snipple? No. The Scriptures declare that he is spiritually dead. He is spiritually dead and needs nothing short of a resurrection. The fourth part of the equation, according to Boyce, was God's sovereign freedom. God's sovereign freedom. God's sovereign freedom involves what the Scriptures call election. Election is not a word to shy away from or to hide your face from. Election is a glorious teaching of Scripture. God is sovereign in whom he chooses. Why are we gathered here tonight? And and I trust, and only God knows your hearts, and uh, you know each other better than I know all of you, but I trust that you're gathered here tonight because you are truly saved. You are truly redeemed. Otherwise, you have other things to do that would be better than sitting in church on a Sunday night. But why are we here? Because God had mercy on us because He chose to have mercy on us. God chose us not because He saw that this group in this building tonight are the best people that there are on the planet. They are the finest folk. So I'll make them my children. No, we were worthless We were helpless. We were rebels. You you know, you are familiar with this passage that I'm turning in my Bible to, and I invite you to turn to as well. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Yesterday this passage was read at the funeral for the dear man at our church who had passed away. One of his favorite passages. Any of us who know anything about this passage of Scripture, Grace. We're not deserving that God's grace, God's amazing grace poured out on us. And the Reformers emphasized sola gratia, the only method that we could be saved. The next is sola fide. Fide. Fidelity comes from that. Sola fide, faith alone, the only means. In The world that the reformers lived in. In answer to the question, how does one become just or righteous before God? The medieval church replied, by the sacraments. And if that wasn't sufficient, there was always purgatory. Sola Fide emphasizes that although faith is the only channel by which we receive faith, it is also the only channel. Although it is only a channel, it is the only channel If faith is merely receiving what God has done for us, then it is by faith alone that we are justified. Why did I picture a hand on this slide? I wanted to picture a hand because that hand is empty. I don't bring anything to God. I receive by faith from God what he has done. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. Who said that? To whom did he say it? These are the words of James to Paul the Apostle, who at the end of his third missionary journey had come to Jerusalem. He had brought the collection that he had gathered among the Gentile churches to give to James and the elders to distribute among the poor saints in Jerusalem. But James told Paul that there were many Jewish believers, he says here, thousands among the Jews of those who have believed, at least profess salvation, and they are all zealous for the law. There is a term that becomes uh, an important term in understanding certain things in the New Testament, especially the book of Galatians and especially Acts chapter 15. It is the term Judaizers, And the question that is connected with the Judaizers is this. How can a Gentile be saved? How can a Gentile be saved? May I just ask tonight, how many of you are Gentiles? How many of you? I I, I assumed (laughs) it was going to be a large majority, maybe a complete majority. Alright, the term Gentile is on one side, the term Christian is on the other side. Is it possible to get from Gentile to Christian? That is, is it possible for a Gentile to be a Christian? May I read to you also from Acts chapter 15? You need not turn there, as soon as I get there I'm going to read it. Acts chapter 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. And here's what they were saying. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they said with regard to Gentiles becoming Christians. So I'm going to put a word inside of that arrow. The answer of the Judaizers is works. That's how a Gentile could become a Christian. By works. By the work of circumcision. By the work of keeping the law of Moses. Or another way that that could be said is they were emphasizing that for a Gentile to become a Christian meant that a Gentile had to become a Jew first and then become a Christian. Is that the gospel? Can you get from Gentile to Christian? Well, here's another attempt. Works plus faith. Works plus faith. Works are such an important ingredient, so say these people. But let's include faith. Even if it's just a little bit of faith, let's include faith. Maybe, as one of the reformers, John Calvin, used to say, let's say all that we have to contribute is one pebble's worth of faith. One pebble's worth. But it's faith added to that. But there's a third possibility. And you know what that third possibility is? Faith. How does a Gentile become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? How did I become a Christian? May I say to you that as far as the Bible is concerned, I'm going to read a verse from Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, and verse 16. And to me, Although there are many, many clear verses that answer the question as to how a person is saved, this one, or how a person is justified, this one states it over and over and over in one single verse. Galatians 2.16, Paul writes, No less than three times over in that verse, does Paul write, does Paul emphasize that we are not saved by the works of the law. We are saved by faith in Christ. Faith alone. Not works, not faith plus works or works plus faith. Faith alone. You know, essentially it boils down to this for the whole world. Every individual in this world who is interested at all in standing before God someday and being welcomed into heaven by God, every person in this world is following one of two paths. Path number one, works. The majority of this world is assuming that works will get them there. I'm a good person. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a charitable person. I give, I give generously to every charitable need that comes up and every world disaster that happens. Or I attend Mass regularly. Or I have made pilgrimages to the Holy Land or to other holy sites. Or I have washed in the Ganges River. Or so many other things. All works that they think are going to give them a right standing toward God. It's either that road, or it's the road of faith in Christ alone. But I must come to the fifth of these solas tonight, and this fifth sola is soli deo gloria. God's glory alone. To God alone be the glory. Because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God, all the glory is due to God alone. We must live our lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, and for His glory alone. Well... In closing, let's talk about perhaps the greatest doctrinal treatise that was ever written. What would it be? Well, certainly a prime candidate for that role would be the Book of Romans, the greatest doctrinal treatise, certainly the greatest inspired doctrinal treatise ever written. The Book of Romans, as so many of Paul's epistles, is made up of two parts a doctrinal part, and a practical part. Uh, The book of Ephesians is a great illustration of a rather short epistle that falls neatly into two halves. First three chapters, doctrinal. Last three chapters, practical. The book of Romans, it's not half and half as far as chapters are concerned. In the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are doctrinal. And then from chapter 12 to the end to chapter 16... Is practical. But you know what falls right in the middle of those two? Let's look at it. Go to Romans chapter 11 with me, please. Romans chapter 11. These are the concluding words that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the doctrinal section of this book is drawing to its close. And the practical section uh, as to how we are to live is about to begin. Paul's words beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The book of Romans is not done at that point. But the book of Romans has come to the end of the practical section, uh, the end of the theological section, the doctrinal section. And the practical section is about to begin. Well, so what does all this mean? Why did I choose to share these things tonight? Well, for one thing, because I love so much Reformation Day, and I think Reformation Day is so often, and I don't say this because I think it's lost here. I don't think so at all. But in so many places, so many churches just don't have any idea about the significance of the Reformation to us. So, looking at these things tonight, is there any... Anything practical, anything valuable that we can carry with us as we leave from church tonight? That's the question. I want to suggest four things. Uh, By the way, this picture on the screen right now is a picture of what is called the Reformation Monument, or the centerpiece of the Reformation Monument, in the city of Geneva. Uh, It is a thrilling place. Uh, Something that you should notice... In this picture, and I, I, I noticed I was going to point to the back picture. It wouldn't help for <laughs> me to point to the back picture. I want you to notice that, you see, there's a book here in his hands. This is John Calvin. This man right here, do you see there's a book in his hands? This is William Farrell. You see this man over here? He's holding a book. That's Theodore Beza. This man over here, Is holding a book in his hands. That's John Knox. I have no question in my mind as to the book that they're holding. They're all holding the Word of God. They're all holding the Word of God. Unquestionably. Four things. Number one, knowing these truths must result in deep thankfulness to God. Deep thankfulness to God. We must be deeply thankful, you guys, that God has given us his word. We possess his word. Can you, ima- can you imagine what it would be like to live in the world somewhere where you do not have the Bible? People still live that way in some places in the world. And some people have given their lives to very painstakingly and slowly, sometimes reduce languages that don't have a written form into a written language and then begin the process of teaching the people their own language and the process of translating scripture. The fact that Christ is our only Savior. The fact that God's grace has been so abundant. The fact that faith alone is how we become a Christian and that we give glory to God. We must give thanks to God for those things. Second of all, We must be resolute and unafraid to stand for the truth no matter what the cost. Peter and John did that in the scene that we looked at at the beginning. The Reformers did that. There are people in this world today, in many locations, who are standing resolute, unafraid, because of their loyalty to the gospel. I spoke, I had the opportunity to speak in chapel at Skycrest Christian School a week or two ago, and God just laid upon my heart to speak to those junior high kids what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, nor of me, his prisoner. You know, some pretty alarming things for Christians have happened in recent days and months, haven't they? In certain judicial decisions that have been made and so on. What does the future hold? There are many who are saying that the future holds a a kind of persecution that we just haven't seen in this country. We must be willing to be resolute in what we believe in, the truths of Scripture. A third thing. If we're true to God's word, it should be no surprise that we are considered narrow-minded. Our message is a narrow message. Should we be willing to broaden our message so that people don't think that we're narrow-minded? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And finally, count it all joy that we walk in the path of those who love the Scriptures, were loyal to the Scriptures, and lived the Scriptures. As the psalmist said in Psalm 2, um, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a godly heritage. I am not ashamed to be connected with those who have been loyal to the Gospel over the years. I rejoice in the rich heritage that I have, and I trust that you do as well. Praise God for all that he has done for us and will continue to do for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have done such great things for us that we sit here without a need in the world in many respects. We can say that, Father, because our eternal welfare has been won for us and has been graciously granted to us. We sit here tonight as the heirs of heaven. We sit here tonight as the possessors of the word of God. And dear Lord, I pray that we would walk in a fashion that men would see our love for Christ. May they never, ever be mistaken in looking at our lives to think that uh, we are living for ourselves or that we are living for some other cause that is more important than the cause of Christ. May they see Christ in us. And Heavenly Father, I, I pray especially for these people. I pray in particular for the young ones who are here. Father, that you would mold and shape their lives by the scripture. Thank you for godly parents who are here tonight, for a godly pastor and elders and teachers. And Father, may these young people be young people who will unashamedly live for you no matter what the future holds. Now, bless us as we go from here tonight, Lord. Take us safely to our homes and as we rest our heads on our pillows tonight, Lord, we are so thankful that we are yet one more day closer to being in your presence for all of eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much.